I hope that if people take anything away, they think of that because there's so many times you're like, I just don't understand. Like, why is this happening? And, and yeah, it's not over. (laughs) So I, I just, I live by that. I just think it's so helpful to keep that in the back of your mind because, because it does. These things really do work out. How often do we actually push ourselves out of our comfort zones? We rarely venture into the wrong side of comfortable. But when we do, the journey can be not only liberating, but life-changing as well. My guest on this episode is Colorado native Amy Charity. Amy, at the age of 34, left the financial industry to pursue her passion and a career in professional bike racing. Amy raced all over the world and at the highest level of the sport. She was a member of the U.S. national cycling team and raced in the world championships. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Thrilled to have with me today, Amy Charity in the studio. So good to see you. Oh, thank you. You too. It's great to be here. So inspired with your book and your journey, Amy. I I love this book. Her book is The Wrong Side of Comfortable. It's chase your dreams, discover your potential, and transform your life. And it sounds like you definitely did, Amy. I have to tell you right off the bat what I loved about you uh, from reading that book is that at in your mid-30s, you said you, that you broke the norm for cyclists. For and sure. Yeah. yeah. So you were married, you had a good career, everything, you had this nice home, everything was secure. And so kind of talk about what ignited you into this journey. Yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly how it was. I, I basically took what was a, a pretty good life by most standards and kind of blew up everything that I knew and had to write a book about it because I hope that people will consider where they are in their lives and think about are there things I can still do because it's, it's not too late to do them. But really how that journey began is I just started riding in different races. So I was 34 when I did my first bike race. At the time, lived in Steamboat Springs. We get a lot of snow, about 400 inches a year. So this is definitely a six-month-a-year-at-best place to ride a bike. And I, I started riding. A friend talked me into going to a race at Lookout Mountain. And it went, the race went really well, but I also just had the time of my life. I I just blended everything that I loved from a physical challenge. There was a bit of a mental challenge with, with myself and cause it it's painful and trying to figure out, can you keep going and how do you go faster and how do you not blow up and how do you pace yourself? And then a little bit of competition on how do you, yeah, like, how do I work this? And is this girl going to, is she going as fast as she can? Or does she have more in the tank and trying to understand that? And I, I felt like that, that very first race ignited something that was just, I, I knew that I had to continue bike racing at that time. I didn't know how far I would take it, but I knew that this was something I loved this. I had tapped into a passion that was something that I knew that I wanted to continue so that, that all started with that first race, and it, it really took off from there. Well, and, and you have this three-year journey that ends, I believe, with the 2015 time trials. Am I That's saying that right. correctly? That's right, yes, and it was it was the world championship. So that, um, it, as a cyclist, that 
that is the ultimate. So Olympics is up there as well, but the world championships is because it's every year, it's the most esteemed race because it's something that it's not just who happens to be fit right before the Olympics. It's actually on a year basis that people are vying for their spot. They're hoping their team gets into the race. And then within a team, you hope that you're one of the six that are selected to do that race. So for me, that was certainly the, the highlight. And that was going to, to the top in the world of cycling, um, was racing in the world championships. So there, there is nothing that uh, as a cyclist, there's nothing you would rather do than, than participate in race in that event. And so that was really kind of the, the pinnacle for me to, to make it there to that point. Well, let's talk about your journey in getting there. I love this whole thing, the the wrong side of comfortable. And throughout the book, you have this comfort zone that you show that increases or decreases. Yes. Yeah. And what what I found was even when when you're pursuing your passion. So for anyone out there who's thinking of making a change or going after something, one of the things we consider is, well, it's my passion. I'm going to love it the whole time. This is going to be the best thing I've ever done. And what I discovered a lot along the way is this is really hard. There are even the things you think are going to be hard are hard. And then the things you don't think are going to be hard are hard. And so to know that as you go each step of the way is keep that big picture in mind. And, and for me, it was, where can I go as a cyclist? Can I race on the national team? Could I race in the world championships? What level can I take this? But I think this is applicable to anyone who's following something is you have that end vision in the back of your mind, but what, what you need to go through, and it's what I call the wrong side of comfortable, um, what you need to go through to get there. And that to me was these, these journeys were, were challenging in a lot of times. Um, you know, I left, I left my home, I left my husband temporarily and my dog and everything that I knew I left to, to chase this, this dream, but it was, it was tough along the way. But what, but we all know this, but what I, you learn again and again is it is, it's those journeys that are, that make it all worthwhile. That is what made kind of getting to a a top level in cycling. That's what made it worth it was all of those challenges and overcoming them. And oftentimes it it seems like we see someone at that pinnacle moment, right? Or the world's race. Yes. Yes. And, and we don't realize the years of preparation and the heartache and the hardship and the body aches and the pain that went to get there. That's exactly right. And and I feel like it's so important to emphasize that because we see people at these peak performances and we go, God, that's exciting. Or we, we watch the Olympics. We're like, Oh, that's so great. Without really realizing exactly that you were constantly for three years pushing up against your comfort zone edge. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's um, what you were speaking to earlier. I really found it fascinating that I think there are those levels of expanding your comfort zone. And I think we've all experienced this. Maybe the first time you did a run back in college, you ran a mile or two, and then you ran a 5k and you're like, whoa, I, I just doubled my distance. And then maybe a 10k. And what I think of with that is you're constantly expanding what becomes comfortable. And that's, that's such a great thing to know is something that was scary to you at some point becomes the norm. And then you can push that boundary. 
I do think that there's a, a place when you're kind of outside of that zone that I, I think when you push it too far, it's it's a panic zone. And I've, I've certainly been there before. And I think some of us get to the point where you're actually not learning. You're too far outside of it. Um, and, and that happens. But I think finding that edge is where we really grow and not only grow, but that is that's where your great experience is. When you come off of having been there, that is, that's the ultimate. You never feel more alive than after you've kind of been on that edge, learned and, and mastered that skill. That to me is what this is all about. Normalizes for, for all of us as we're facing life's challenges and we're, you know, whether it's sports or music or just, you know, a new relationship or a new situation, yes. you know, we're faced with these different challenges. And so when you did these concentric circles in the book, and so the, the middle one was the comfort zone, and then it went out and it was the next one Perfect. the learning so, zone. Yep, that's right. And then the last one was the panic zone. Panic zone. That's and, right. And, exactly. Yeah. And, and speak about what helped you get through those times when you found yourself in the panic zone. In How the- did you pull yourself back into the other circles that actually would help you continue yeah. To, to, yeah, learn and, and accomplish your dream? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I think that the very first thing to think about is keep coming back to your strengths. And so in, and it's easy. I, I talk about bike racing a lot, but it's actually a metaphor for anything in life. So if this is a job where you're complete, you're, you're all of a sudden the finance director and you're like, uh Oh, this is a bigger world than I thought come back to the things that you know. And in bike racing for me, I knew I could go for a long time. I knew my strength was endurance. I knew that I was a a diesel engine. I knew that at some point, some of these girls going really fast and really hard are going to blow up. So when I'm in this terrifying group, there are 200 of us, we're going 25 miles per hour. I can think, Okay, I can find, I know how to sit here at a reasonable pace. I can find somebody that I trust and know, and I can focus on those things that I'm really comfortable with. It's just reminding yourself of some of those basics. I've I've ridden my bike thousands of miles. I know how to do this. It's a little bit more scary. We're going faster. People are really close together, but I know how to do this. And I think if you can apply that to whatever it is you're doing, which is, I've, I've taken these classes. I understand this. This is, this is the stuff I know. I know how to build relationships with people. I know how to keep this together. Um, that allows you to sort of push those boundaries into that unknown area. But I think if you can keep grounding yourself back to your strengths, that is, that is key. I found in, in doing well in any new challenge is, remember those things you do well. If I spend the whole time thinking, uh-oh, I'm not as technically savvy as these girls. I don't descend as fast as they are. Uh-oh, then I'm, that sends me into a cycle of going the wrong direction. If I say, you know what, I am, I've been on a bike longer than most of these people and I really have more miles in my legs, I can, can kind of um, do better in that situation. So it's such a mental game. I mean, Definitely. it's also, I, I am imagining a mental competition, not just a physical Absolutely. competition, if you Absolutely. will, because you yes. have to be in that right mindset that you're talking about. Yeah. So much of it is your, your mindset. I think that's one of the, the magical things about any sort of athletic event is getting your head in the right place because you can convince yourself that your legs feel terrible or you can convince yourself that your legs feel great. Um, and that's always interesting to me. I, I remember being in a, a 
a race once and I was just about to finish and the whole time, and I was pretty new to racing at that point, and I was thinking about how scary it was and how tight the corners were. And I was sort of coming off the back of the, the field. There were probably 50 women there. And then I'd get myself back up to just the very back of the group. And then I'd fall to the back and then chase back up. And the whole time I, in my head, I was thinking, this is hard. I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. I don't think I corner as well as anyone. I'm breaking too much. So just negative thought, negative thought, negative thought. So I had about one lap to go and my husband was there and he, he yelled to me, Amy, this is the last lap, which I should have known, but I was so focused on all the other stuff that wasn't going well. And actually at that point he snapped me out of it and I was like, Oh, I got to get going. Like I have a bike race to win. And I was able to focus and actually pull it off. But all of that was about in my mind, it was all mental. Everything that I had going on, I was distracting from myself. And just that external voice, literally my husband telling me, get it together, focus, you have a bike race to win. And um, I was able to kind of pull that off. So I think that that story, it's, it's pretty funny to look back in, in hindsight of, of how inexperienced I was. But I think that the takeaway is, is listen to those outside people who are encouraging you. And at some point, if you can step away from all those reasons why you can't do something and just know that you can, you can pull off that, that win. So that to me is just inspiring in anything you do. In so many of the episodes, we talk about our limiting beliefs yes. and how those really can predict the outcome. And so that's what I'm hearing you say. I mean, you conquered these limiting beliefs. And when you became aware of them, like when your husband said, you know, last lap, yeah, let's go. Get you, it together. you were able to, to kind of, if you will, wake up to like, yeah, yes. I got to do this. I'm going to win this race. I'm going to do my best. Yes, and switched absolutely. your mindset. Yeah. That, that to me is, is the most fascinating. It's just such an interesting phenomenon. And I've read a lot about it. And it's when people are told they can do something or even when people are accidentally told that they're doing better than they actually are, sometimes they pull it off. And that is like, the power of your mind is incredible. And if you, and it's, it's hard to shift in the moment. It's hard for me when I have a train of negative thoughts, it's hard to, to get out of that. But I think the more we can do, whether it's telling yourself that, that mantra that you believe, whether it's having someone from the outside encourage you, whatever it is that you need to do to kind of focus on that positive, it's, it's something we hear all the time, but it's incredibly powerful. What it does is it breaks us out of our trance. Exactly. Exactly. That's, I mean, that, as you say that, that's, I would say that is the state I was in just like, uh Oh, I didn't corner. Well, I'm breaking too much. I'm last place. I'm in the back. Like that, those were my thoughts. And I had to get out of those thoughts to be able to do something. What in the beginning of the book, you talk about one of the first, I think it was one of the first times where your trainer was taking you and you were trying to do like this qualifying time of 16 minutes up this horrific hill and yes. you get to the top and you're just literally spent. Yes. I mean, I, mean I, I don't know if you were heaving, like throwing yes. up or yes. like, <laughs> everything. Every, oh my I, God. Every, I, I know I, I, I try to say that in a polished manner that I lost control of all bodily functions, but that's pretty much what happened. And that was on a training ride, but I just, to me, it was a really powerful moment because my coach 
he first of all, 100% believed in me, but he also knew exactly what I was capable of doing because he had studied my numbers, my power. He knew my heart rate. He knew how I breathed. So when I was wheezing, he knew I had like a minute left. When I was, you know, when I'm talking, I have, I can ride all day long. And then there, there's sort of these levels and he could hear me. I guess I start coughing when my heart rate gets into the one eighties. So he knew these levels and he had it timed and he believed that I could do something. And it was like, this is what we're doing. You're trained for this. I will lead you out. You need to sit on my wheel. You can do this. And it's 16 minutes and I will, those are probably the longest 16 minutes of my life. I still remember it. I still remember every turn. I still remember how I felt at minute eight and that wasn't even a race. It was literally, let's see what you can do. And to me, that was the epitome of the wrong side of comfortable. That was every single thing in your body is screaming to you. And, and yet you can still, you can do it and you can, can hang on to it. So that, that in my mind was sort of a tipping point. It was, I'm, I am mentally and physically willing to do this, to see where I can go as a bike racer. And I think you can, for any of the listeners out there, that's, that's true in your work. And that's true in a lot of different situations is find, find that, find that edge of what you have and then make a decision. Like this isn't pleasant. Is it still worth it? Do I still want it? And if you do, you got, you have to go for it. Well, and how, and how did you do that? How did you, you, you speak in the book and I love that every chapter you have these takeaways. Yes. Yeah. Which, which are just great. And some wonderful exercises to get people to start thinking about like, how do they clarify their own vision? And you speak about that in one of the chapters, discuss how clarifying your vision at this time, how did that help you achieve this dream? Yeah, I think if any of us can consider what that end picture looks like, but really try to live it. So not only here's a picture of me, you know, whatever it is that your your ultimate goal is, but smell, taste, breathe, feel what that experience is. And I had this very specific image of my mind of racing in Europe and being in a group of five women that gets off the front and then I, I win the final sprint and I can hear the roar of the crowd and I can feel those chills that I have going through my bones. And I, and I know what that sounds like. It's loud and, and your legs are spent, but you're absolutely ecstatic about what you've accomplished. So you, you know what that scene is and everything about it, I would replay in my mind. So on those days when I'm in steamboat alone and I'm riding my bike and my legs are tired and it's about to rain and nobody else is out there and I feel like I'm the only one, I, I go back to that vision and I go back to it's worth it. What's worth it? And that made it worth it to me. Trying to get to that place in my life would be the ultimate. That's what I, what I wanted to accomplish. And so if you can have that and really define it and live it every day, and then you have small steps that get you there. So maybe it's not racing in Europe in front of a crowd, but you win the state championships or you win a national championship and you keep taking those steps along the way that are kind of your, you're checking one thing off, you know, you're moving in the right direction. But I think having that vision 
it's more than a vision. It is something that you actually, like you can, every part of it, you can feel and touch and taste. Well, it sounds like that's what you did. I mean, you brought in all of your senses into that vision. So it became like this visceral experience. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I would say it, it, there were races where I, I did get to taste it a little bit. I wasn't exactly in the, in the Olympics at that point, but I was in a really big race and to just sample what that was like propels you to keep going. So that to me is such a good way to, to set a goal is having, having that really big picture and make it audacious, make it bigger than life, but see yourself doing that. It goes back to the power of the mind. And, and if you can really think through what that's going to look like, you can get there. One of the things that it sounds like has been really imperative. A lot of times as we're going through our dreams, we have to look around and who are our support people? Yes. And your husband seems like he's been such a big part of this for you. And yet I imagine for a lot of racers and people that have to spend time away from their husbands or boyfriends, um, how difficult that is. And I'm curious, you know, how did you maintain your relationship with your husband with all these long, grueling hours of practice and travel? And tell me about that. That's a, um, an interesting one because I think bike racing is not, it's, it's not social. It doesn't make sense for a lot of, I shouldn't say it doesn't make sense, but it's, it's, you are away from civilization as we call it for hours and hours and hours a day. And when you're done with your ride, you're stretching, you're napping, you're eating the right food, going to bed. It is, it's not a lifestyle that you can go to the movies, go on walks, go to happy hour, the things that many of us consider to be normal day-to-day activities you don't do. And that's true with even, I wasn't allowed to swim. I wasn't allowed to run. Literally you ride a bike. That is, and we can talk about that a bit as well. But so you, you, you come into this single dimensional life. And I think one is you recognize that this is not forever. This is, this is a, there's a goal, there's an end game here. And this is what it's going to take to achieve that. In my particular case, my husband grew up on a bike. He's English and he raced at a very top level in his early twenties. He was on the British national team. And I think that single-handedly is the reason that he understood what I was chasing because it's really hard, especially in, even in our country there, cycling is not like tennis. You, most people can't name one female pro cyclist. You can name a top tennis player, but that, that might be the only sport that you can name a female at the top. Cycling is not that way. So when you look at kind of why would you do this? It's it like you're changing everything about your life. You're giving everything up. And I think it's really hard for people to understand the appeal. But in my case, having had a, a husband who raced at a top level, he understood that inside and out. In fact, when, when I was racing over in Belgium and he's like, you're doing head newsblad. Like that is a spring classic. Like I used to listen to that bike race on the radio and he knew the guys who raced it. It's uh, you know, it's something that he really understood what, what that cycling dream is about. And, and having him as a supporter was absolutely priceless. 
he was unconditionally supportive. I would call and I had bad races all the time and I would do things that weren't very smart or I wouldn't feel well. And he, he had my back. So having a support network, whether that is a spouse or boyfriend or parent, friend, sibling is absolutely critical. He, because there were times when your teammates are your, your allies and they're your competition. And it's somebody who is unconditionally behind you. And it was, it was wonderful to have someone who really understood what I was trying to do. When you talk about your challenges that you faced and that not every race was a great race. Definitely. I, I, I think that's really important though, because sometimes as we're pursuing our dreams and we're not seeing the results that we want to, we can get really discouraged. Yes. I think you, you've got to know that going in. And I think that there are a lot of, there are a lot of things that make that challenging. One is, you know, you've traded off a lot, you know, you've given up so much And so when you have a bad race, you're like, oh, I gave up a great job and I'm barely making ends meet and I'm not racing well. So that that's really challenging. You've had this huge trade off. And the other is you've had you've done so much to get there that you think you should be great. And there were races that I I would do a local race sometimes and would have a bad race. And it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm supposed to be at a national level and I can barely survive in this local level. What's wrong with me? Do I belong? here. And I think that keeping that positive mindset, maintaining perspective, it's hard. And it's additionally hard when you are type A and a perfectionist, which many athletes are, you expect to do a a perfect job. And there are a handful of people who I would always say, oh, they go so easy on themselves. And I would almost look at that like, well, they'd say, well, my legs didn't feel good because I did this training ride or they'd have excuses. And I I would look down on that and I would think like, oh no, you, you just didn't race well. But I've come full circle on that. I actually think that you should go easy on yourself. It it probably is true that your your legs are tired from a race you did before and you can't always be great. So that was something that I had to tell myself and I continue to do so. I think it's it's still hard, but to it's not an excuse. And um, it's it's a reason. It's a reason that you don't always do well. And, and that's okay. I think if you can keep looking at the big picture and know you learned something along the way and then go move on to the next race. And that's, it's easier said than done. I would say I'm, I still struggle with this because you want to do well always. And we, and we don't, we're human. (laughs) For sure. Well, there's something important though, that you, that you just said though, about extracting the lessons or extracting whatever wisdom you could get from sometimes when we fail. Yes, completely. Just things that you do that don't, I remember learning how to operate in a Peloton and just, it used to scare me to go back to the car. So there's, you're riding in a group and there's all the cars follow us and it, you can go back to the cars to communicate with your director. And I, I was terrified at doing that. And because I always thought I was going to get dropped. And in one race I did, there was an attack. I was in the cars and I never made it back up and that's okay. It's, it's a learning lesson. It's paying more attention to what's happening in front. And even though I still am like, Oh, I can't believe that happened. That was awful. Like it's, I, it won't happen again. <laughs> like, right, if right. I were to do that race again, I, I know how it works now. And that again is, that's a learning zone. That's borderline panic. That's the learning zone. I picked up a really, really good lesson and having it cut pretty deep, you know, like the fact that I still feel it is, uh, it was a good lesson to learn. 
So tell me a little bit about part of your achievement, it sounds like, came through this obsession, this passion you had, yeah. this awesome vision and focus. While you were kind of obsessed with this goal, how did you find other balance in your life? I mean, I heard you just say, you can't go to movies, you can't do things normal people do, you couldn't yeah. swim. That was, so I think of that as, um, it was very incremental. So when I first started do, doing bike races, I still, I still swam with my girlfriends and I still ran once a week and I would still live a fairly normal life and just ride after I had a full-time job road after work. And what I found was each step along the way, you think, okay, here's where I am. And this is, it's going to take a little bit more. Do I have it? Am I still committed? Do I still want this? And I would do a little bit more. And so it was small steps along the way, which was, okay, actually, I can't train 10 hours. I need to train 15 to 20 hours a week. And actually, I need to I need to invest in a power meter so I can have a coach that knows what my numbers are. And then the coach tells you, you're not going to run anymore. That's damaging to cycling legs and you lose some of that snap and you can't swim anymore. You, We don't need you to have an upper body. We need you to be thin on top and all legs. And so it, each one of those small steps, you think, is this still worth it? Am I committed? Do I want this? And if you do, if the answer is yes, then you, you make that trade off and then you take the next step. And so these, I never call them sacrifices because I think they're choices. They're, I wasn't sacrificing. I just had to choose. Like, do I want a good salary or do I want to be a good a bike racer? Do I want a comfortable life at home in steamboat or do I want to be a bike racer? And each step along the way, I had to make those decisions. And so because it was so incremental, it was so gradual, that made it easier to get to that bigger point. And I think also knowing that it wasn't forever. Let's live a lifestyle that's really restricted for a specific amount of time and see where you can go. So truth be told, I, I wasn't balanced. I was a number one, a bike racer, and then number two, like a, a sleeper, and then number three, a wife, and number four, a friend. And, and I think that I, I wasn't what I would consider balanced bike racing, but I knew that it was temporary. And I, I'll say I've, I've gone back to a very balanced lifestyle now that I'm not racing professionally anymore, but it's, you, you do make those trade-offs. And I think you get to that point through small steps along the way, figure out what your big goal is and then do little, little tiny steps each step along the way. And it's amazing where you can get by doing those, those really small things. And that leads right into my next question. You talk in the book about the art of perseverance. Can you yes. talk about that a little bit? Cause that sounds exactly yes. like what yes, you've just been alluding is. to. Yes. I think yeah, I think perseverance is such a, a tricky one because it's it's making it when things are not pleasant and it's hanging in there. And I think that even so you see this in your jobs, you see this in relationships, you see this in any facet of your life of people who seem to have that, whether it's grit or perseverance, but basically last over time. And I think that it's that ability to look within and know this this temporary thing that's unpleasant is going to go away. And you can think of that when you're on a bike, physical pain on a bike, or the sort of missing some aspect of your life is, okay, this is, this is a choice that I'm making, and this is really hard, but I can keep going. And I, I think that that is something that people can apply 
in, in anything they're doing. And I saw it a lot in bike racing. There were girls who were probably stronger than me or faster than me, but when things got hard, they thought, Oh, I think I've had enough. And that is, that's when the, the people who are willing to kind of grind it out actually make it. And so if you can, if you want something, you have to really, really want it. And I think that's sometimes where people that they have to be really true with themselves. Like, for example, I hear all the time, I want to learn a second language. If you really want to learn it, you can totally do that. You can do that in the next six months. Like no matter who you are, no matter who, how busy your life is, no matter how many kids you have, like you can do that, but you have to really, really want it. And then you will get up 20 minutes earlier a day and practice. And then you will, you will not listen to that music you love. You're going to listen to audio tapes. So there are ways to make things happen, but they do, they require wanting something badly and then a belief you can get there and then true commitment to it. Well, and like you said, willing to do the trade-offs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It, and it, there always will be. We don't, none of us are spoiled for time and money. None of us have all the resources we want. We're missing something. And it can be any of those things or a lot of other things. But if you can, if you can be okay with those that you can give up, you absolutely can, can reach your goal and accomplish what it is you want. Hi, this is Chris Lanfear. We'll get back to our conversation in a moment, but I wanted to take a second to let you know a little secret. Radio isn't free. We spend a lot of resources producing shows like the one you're listening to right now, and that all costs money. Every little bit helps, so if you like what you're hearing, go to noco.fm, that's N-O-C-O dot F-M, and click on the Donate Now button. Your donation goes directly into producing more shows like the one you're hearing right now. Our staff is made up of volunteers, so we don't have much of a budget. In fact, most of the time, we don't have any budget. But that's where you come in. So if you like what you're hearing, please go to noco.fm and support us. Thank you. Hey, I'm Jack from the radio show Punk Rock Demonstration, heard here on noco.fm every Tuesday and Friday, 10 p.m. to midnight Mountain Time, and 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Pacific Time. You can expect to hear punk rock, some interviews of your favorite bands, maybe some future favorite bands, and me ranting and raving, which is the best part of the show. You can tune in over your web browser at noco.fm or through the TuneIn app. That's Punk Rock Demonstration. For sharing that and I think one of the important things that you speak of too it's really important I remember you know, Tony Robbins I went to a Tony Robbins event yeah. uh, last June in New York City and he was talking oh. about one of the things you mentioned in the book which was the role of mentors in our lives and that we have people that experts in the field whatever that might be or people we can look to and say I, I really want to emulate that absolutely who are your role yeah. models and mentors and yeah. and tell me about the effect of that in your life. Yeah. I can't speak highly enough about um relationships in general but finding people who can 
help you get to the next level. Because first of all, surrounding yourself by people who are better than you in what you're trying to do is essential. In bike racing, it meant going to Tucson where all of the pro cyclists hang out in the winter and putting myself there. I was surrounded by people who had the same interests, the same passion, the same skill set, and most of them were better than me. And that's by spending time with those people, you just get better. You're not the one who's doing that. Whoa, there goes Amy on a bike. What's she doing? It's November in Steamboat. All of a sudden it was November in Tucson and I was surrounded by 500 other people on the road on a bike going on a long ride. So you start to do what those others are doing and you learn from them every single time. And that was critical. So for specific of cycling, um, being around people that know what to do, how to race, how to train, it was critical that I was with them. From a bigger perspective is who are those people who are influential? So who are those people who have have been there before or who are in the industry or who are decision makers in some of the things that you want to do? What I've learned in my 40 plus years is that people want to help you. Nine times out of 10 or more people, they want to help others. I'm honored when somebody asks me about cycling or equipment or how to pedal better. I love it when a young person asks me how to get into to bike racing or a certain career. I and I think that that's the norm. Most of us want to help people. So if you can think of how you would want to help others and apply that, reach out. It's scary to make a phone call to somebody who's you know, prestigious in their area and who is has much more knowledge than you. I understand it's terrifying to ask people to help you or for advice. But I cannot speak enough to how that opened doors throughout my career, both work career and cycling. In cycling specifically, I I met the the director of the U.S. national team, and I met him on a ride, and he was like, "Wow, you you race pretty well. Like you you ride a bike well." And so he had some questions, and and we talked. And at the time. I was in no position to even take my career anywhere. I was still working full time. I was still living in Steamboat. And I stayed in touch with him. And I emailed him like, this is what I'm up to. Like, <laughs> what do you think? Or, am, am I on track to ever make it somewhere as a cyclist? And I, I literally reached out to him regularly. And it took a while and it took a lot of racing and getting good results. But I ultimately raced on the US national team. And I think having not only met him, that was that was luck. That was just true fortune to be in the same place at the same time. But I think the the second piece of that was staying in touch, reaching out, putting myself out there, taking a bit of a risk. All of that helped this come together. So while some people might have the talent and some might have the luck, if you can combine both of those and then take that extra initiative to reach out to people, that's that's magic. That's combine all three of those and you're going to open more doors than you ever imagined. So and he, and we're we're friends. He's there. There's just you're you establish these great relationships. And that's that's what this this whole journey is about. In my mind is these great relationships that you develop along the way. So I love this sense of these small risks that lead to these bigger and bigger and bigger things. And and even though it may have been serendipity that, that you had run into him, you had to take that risk to reach out. Exactly. And, and that was scary. He's the director of USA Cycling. Like what? Who am I? I'm like a little 
little steamboat girl who owns a bike. That's scary. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) And the wonderful thing you've said, and it's been my experience as well, when I'm reaching out to people in psychology, people in my field that are national bestsellers and world presenters, they respond. Of course. Yeah. You know, and and we think, oh my gosh, this is someone I've read their books or I've followed them for decades. There's no way. And, And just exactly what you were saying resonates, Amy, with me so much, which is people really do want to help and they're writing those books and they're doing those presentations just like yourself so they can share that knowledge they can share what they've learned and this wisdom and experience with you yes and and that's part of what's so wonderful is their contribution they want to help you yeah when you're when somebody asks you I'm always I'm like I'm honored that you consider me an expert yes I'd love to help yeah I do know that stuff. I spent a lot of time on it. I, I can help you with riding well. So yeah, that's that would be my recommendation to people is just put yourself out there. And I know that that, I mean, that's just one more example of the wrong side of comfortable. It is. I, I don't think it, it's very few people does that come naturally to, but it's, you're always happy you did it. Let's talk about the biggest, probably wasn't your biggest challenge, but one of these big obstacles or challenges that you faced at the end of the book, you talk about the crash that happened yes. the day yeah. before worlds. Yes. And can you kind of tell that story? Yeah. So this was, I think there's so many reasons. And to put this in perspective, it's been two and a half years. And it is actually the entire reason I wrote a book is because I had to try to get my head around it. It was like, why did that happen? And what did I need to learn from that experience? But to back up, our team was, uh, got fourth in the world championships in 2014. And it was off by eight seconds, which is nothing in a team time trial. So in 2015, the directors basically decided we are going to put together the most unbelievable powerhouse team of people who know how to time trial. We're going to have the best equipment. We're going to have team camps month after month. And we are going to make sure that we are on the podium this year. This is our number one goal. We're doing a lot of races, but world championships is our number one goal. And so we did those camps. We spent nine months absolutely preparing everything to to do our best. We did win the national championship. So we were the fastest team in the United States. And so we thought, we know who those strong competitors from Europe are in South America, and we think that we at least will be on par with them. So again, everything is ticking along that we think we're going to get top three in the world championships. Everything is lined up. So we go out to our, our team camp before the race, and our director picks the six of us who are going to, to compete, which again is really challenging. We're a team of 11, and everyone is strong, and everyone is good at this event, and he eventually narrowed it down to six. Um, And so we had the strongest team and practiced every single move from who would start, who would finish, how fast, how's our pacing, literally everything. The day before the race, you do something called a race simulation. So he, our director and a lead moto car goes out. We put on everything we're going to use for the race. So skin suits, aero helmets, race radios so he can communicate with us, literally just dialing in, working out the final kinks. And on that day before, we had, I always call it the perfect storm of bad luck. Um, There was a pothole in the road. There was some commotion off to the side and our lead motor car was turning left one turn too early. So there were a few, just two distractions and a pothole, which any one of those alone, I think we would have made it, but all three of those combined, my teammate in front went into the hot pothole and 
in a team time trial, you don't have access to your brakes. They're on your hoods and you're on these aero bars. We were going over 30 miles per hour. We're millimeters away from each other's wheels and every single one of us crashed. And so the girl, the number two girl had a severe concussion. We had three damaged helmets, which means the rest of us probably had mild concussions. Um, another girl broke her collarbone. I injured my knee. There was every single one of us was covered in road rash. And we just sat on the side of the road. The pictures to this day are haunting. We're all just sitting there and torn kit and damaged helmets strewn across the road. And we all just had our heads down, like what happens next? And we didn't even know if we would race the next day. Um, we literally found out from Twitter, it was blowing up all the cycling world about what's happening. And, um, our, we found out on Twitter that my teammate did break her collarbone. She was off at the hospital and we were all hopeful that she could still race the next day. But with that <laughs> diagnosis, there was, there was no way. So um, we started with one man down. So five of us started a race where six can start and you don't have a chance really realistically to, to win or to, to do well when you have one less person, not to mention we all were damaged yeah. <laughs> just head to toe in like in um, road rash and um, other injuries. So we started with five of us and we finished, um, we finished in ninth place. Uh, that's not what we wanted. It's not what we had gone there for. We wanted more than anything to win or get top three. So it was, it was devastating, but I do in my two and a half years of <laughs> reflecting on that, I think there, that there are some takeaways and I think they were pretty valuable. And one is, was that successful? That's something I always grappled with. Was that a success? And I've had to look into different definitions of success and really think intros introspectively of what I think success is. And I think the bottom line is, you show up and you do your best give them, given the circumstance that you're in and that in my mind is success. And so I, I do apply that to other things in my life. This, this was about getting back up. This was perseverance that we, we've spoken about. This was you know, picking up ourselves up in the worst case scenario that we ever could have dreamed of and, and doing what we could as a team and, and showing up that day and finishing. And so that to me is, is the lesson there. And that to me was an incredible experience that, that helped me just kind of put life in perspective. You're <laughs> sometimes you get lemons and, and what can you do with it? So we, we didn't, we didn't win the world championships, but I think I have a, a pretty good definition of, of what success is. And I can assure you that I am so close to those teammates that I went through that experience with not just the day before and the race, but the nine months leading up to it. And that whole process, we, we have a really unique bond that I think can only be created going through something like that. So it, while it was, it was, I call it a tragic ending. There were, there were certainly some nuggets of um, happiness in there. And I think some really fulfilling experiences that will stick with me. Lots of gifts that you took away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you're saying that, that really sticks out to me and one of the amazing and important things is that you guys did show up the next right. day and you did right. give it your all. Yeah. No, no one thought what. Even 
get there. Like everyone was like, oh, that team Optum is out. There's no way they're man down and they are head to toe a problem. So they're out. And, and we, we didn't even come in last play. We got ninth. That's okay. It's not great, but we, we did go there and, and gave it our all. And so I think that's a big message is that we very easily could have said, we're, we're not racing tomorrow. And everyone unanimously, we said, we're going to do this. We're going to try. So that to me is pretty important. Well, and when you pan out and look at the big picture too, your ultimate goal three years previous was I want to be at Worlds. Right. And I'm. that's exactly, I. and that was tricky with retiring because I was like, I went to Worlds. I didn't do what I wanted to, but going to Worlds was phenomenal. That's, that's the ultimate. And I still had that experience. So you accomplished that goal, that dream you'd set out for yourself years ago. Definitely. And, and, I, and I hear you and I get it, you know, about, yeah, yeah I want to be in the top three. <laughs> yeah, you want, you want a medal. You want the rest of your life, you want it on your resume that you got a medal at the World Championships. And that, that's not going to happen. But I did race in them. <laughs> well, and, and that's the perspective, right? That's the importance right. that I'm hearing you yeah. say is I went there and I yeah. showed up. Yeah, we did the race. Yeah. yeah. And I love the quote that you had in your book from John Lennon. That says everything works out in the end. If it's not working out, it's not the end. I cannot tell you how often I apply that. I I hope that if people take anything away, they think of that because there's so many times you're like, I just don't understand. Like, why is this happening? And and yeah, it's not over. <laughs> so I, I just, I live by that. I just think it's so helpful to keep that in the back of your mind because because it does. these things really do work out. Well, and tell me about, so what's happened since then? Yes. The last three years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So since bike racing, it's, it's been really a kind of a neat transition. So after, as I was trying to get wrap my head around everything that happened at world specifically, but then over the past few years, I thought I really do need to write this down. I I've, I've learned a lot here and I don't think it's about bike racing. I think it's about life lessons. And so I've written that book and really the, the best part of that has been conversations like this. I've been speaking a lot. Um, and I've spoken to some groups that are really neat, like a group of kids that are about to do a mountain bike race the next day and a group of kids who are sort of underprivileged kids that were given bikes in a a community that they have a a life where none of them had ever been on a bike and that there was this wonderful nonprofit that has provided bikes to them and speaking to those kids and showing them some pictures of racing in Europe. The, it was an hour talk and these kids literally were we're asking questions for another hour and there it was amazing and at the end we talked about goals and half of them want to go into bike racing which is which is really really fun so um it's opened up these doors to really give talks and talk to people about about what bike racing is and some of these other neat experiences are. And then I'm, I'm giving back to Steamboat and the community. I am a director of a nonprofit here where we um, really encourage people to get on bikes here. So that's my my full-time job is kind of combining what I love, Steamboat, and then cycling. So yeah, it's been, it's been a huge transition from the world of credit cards and hedge funds and venture capital into bike racing and now into a nonprofit space. But I, I wouldn't trade any of this. It's, uh, it's really been kind of a a fun journey and it's still going on. (laughs) 
Well, and are you racing at all? Yes, I've, I'm not doing um, professional uh, team racing, road racing, but I've just recently done gravel racing. So I just did something called the Dirty Kansas. It's a 200-mile gravel race, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I got into ski mountaineering this winter, so did some big, um, they call it schemo for ski mountaineering and did some big, um, schemo races. So I, racing will always be a part of me. I think I've, I just will always love the adrenaline and, um, I really enjoy endurance events and, and there's that, that part of getting fit and training and then seeing what you're capable of that. I don't know that I'll ever kick that habit. <laughs> it's pretty much ingrained in me. It's fun to see the different challenges now that you're looking at, that you're pursuing. They're, they're really different. Yeah. Each one of them. And just to see, okay, this is something new. And, and now I'm in my early forties and what, what can I do at this age? So that's, that's the other thing. We're just, you can always try something new. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to feel too old, but not for another 30 or 40 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I can't see that happening to you. I have to say that after talking with you, is there a goal or vision now? Is, is there a future vision that you're holding, Amy? Yeah, I think um, it's just to continue that uh, figuring out what it is that I can do, kind of find my best and, and what, what are those things and how can I make sure that I, I get to that sport, that event, and and really tap into everything that I've learned. So I think that from a, a physical competition type thing, I'm really understand what endurance means and how to train for something. So really trying to to continue to do those things and and just maintain this lifestyle of of being fit and and balanced at this point. So I'd like to continue to help bring more people into into cycling and not necessarily even racing, but just understanding what amazing sport it is and and have people really understand that let me ask you this in every chapter like we talked about you have these takeaways yep. what, what would you like for our audience to take away from this conversation yeah great question i i would say the most compelling thing is it's it's not too late. I know our, we complicate our lives with every, every year. And some of us have lots of kids or some of us have gone down a different path in careers or for whatever reason, you get to a point where you think, oh, when I was a kid, I wanted to do X. But now that I'm 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, I can't do X. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think if you're 55, if you're 60 and you want to get your MBA, I think you should go get your MBA. I don't see a reason not to do these things, whether they're mental, career, physical challenges. I think that people just continue to push what you're able to do because it's so easy to settle into your life. It's so easy to get comfortable. And I'd say just put yourself out there because it's, it's not too late. Go after what you love. Go ahead and dive in to the wrong That's side right. of comfortable. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's how we continue to grow. That's, That's right. And interesting and fulfilling. Yes, exactly. Yes. And the book is The Wrong Side of Comfortable with Amy Charity. Amy, this has been absolutely awesome talking with you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yes, it's been great talking to you too. If you have ever been hesitant to go after your dreams, after listening to Amy Charity's story, achieving your dreams is actually within your reach. 
Vision, determination, finding a mentor, and developing a support team are all key factors in this. And most importantly, it's never too late to go after your dreams. I have a plaque in my kitchen that says, it's never too late for happily ever after. And I believe that is true. Your happily ever after begins now. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, and podcast episodes are released the same day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James.